Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hi, everybody. Lisa Tarmati here, and welcome back to this week's edition of Pushing the Limits, elevating human performance and helping you optimize your health and sporting performance. This week, I have a very interesting man on the show by the name of Jeffrey Wu. Now, Jeffrey is in uh, San Francisco in Silicon Valley. He was a computer scientist who graduated out of Stanford, um, who then made a startup company that he sold to a public company way back when he was just 23 years old. And then he decided to change tack after having such so much success in that area. He turned his um, considerable intelligence towards uh, biohacking and improving and optimizing uh, cognitive performance and now physical performance as well. Um, he has a company now that is called HVMN, um, and he concentrates in the area of uh Keto, the keto diet, ketosis, ketone esters, um, which is a really interesting uh, area to be involved in. He's also very interested in biomarkers and continuous tracking of biomarkers and that technology. Um, And he's really at the cutting edge of what is happening out there in the biohacking world and optimizing performance. So our conversation goes in all sorts of directions. It's a really, really interesting deep dive into what's coming around the corner, uh, what's happening now. We also dive deep into the subject of the keto diet and uh, ketone esters versus keto salts. Um, exogenous ketones versus doing the keto diet, its uses for uh, um, changing your metabolism and becoming a fat adapted and, um, you know, real deep dive into all those good topics. So I hope you enjoy the show. And before we get underway, just a reminder, hop on over to our website at lisatarmati.com. Check out our flagship programs. We've got our online run training academy, Running Hot, where you can optimize your running, get faster, get stronger without burnout and injuries and have my 25 years of knowledge um, to help you get there along with my business partner, Neil Wagstaff, who's been my coach for over a decade and who absolutely saved my bacon. So check that out if you want to improve your running, whether you're doing your very first 5K or whether you're doing your 100th 100 miler. Uh, We can help you. We also have our epigenetics testing program, which we are super excited about. This is a program that we've been running now for the last two years with our clients, and it is absolutely next level and giving you personalized information about your health and um, how to optimize your abilities Um, insights that we've never before had. The last program we have is the Mindset U, which is our Mental Toughness Mindset Academy, um, which is an online course on how to develop all the resilience and mental toughness skills that will see you right in life and help you in all aspects. Now, I also have my book, Relentless, coming out in March the 11th. It's available now for pre-order. This is my third book, and it's been one hell of a mission to get it out, so I'm very glad that this baby is nearly born. Um, This is a story of bringing my mum back after her major aneurysm four years ago, and all the protocols, the the therapies that I use, but most importantly, the mindset and the approach that I took to this huge, huge challenge of bringing her back from the brink of death. So make sure you head on over to lisatarmody.com, hit the shop button, and pre-order that now. 
Right, over to the show with Jeffrey Wu. Well, hi everybody, Lisa Tamati here. Now I am sitting with Jeffrey Wu. Uh, Jeffrey, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I know you're dialing from New Zealand and it's still morning in San Francisco, California. So a proper good morning. <laughs> it is, but you're living in the past. So you're about 20 something hours behind us, 21 hours behind us. So um, I always find that quite weird, but it's very, very cool that technology allows us to connect. And um, Now, Jeffrey is an amazing man. For you listeners out there who don't know Jeffrey, you soon will do. Um, he's, I'd love you to go into a little bit of your background, Jeffrey. Um, you've had an incredible start in life. Um, you were a Stanford uh, computer scientist, but he's gone in a completely different direction. But you've also had a startup company that you've sold on to a public company, uh, I believe. Um, and what really interests me, I'd love to know a little bit of your background and how the heck do you go from computer science to doing what you do now? Because that's really a big leap, shall we say. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Steve. Yeah. Thank you for the very kind introduction there. Um, I think it may look like a large leap from a academic perspective, but really the way I think about my career and my, 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 you know, my life's work at this point is really looking at systems thinking and engineering thinking and applying that approach towards different uh, domains. So obviously you can use engineering techniques to look at computing as a way to solve computing problems. And about five, six years ago, I started becoming more and more interested in how do we apply some of that same systems thinking, that systems training towards the human system, right? And I think that in, in one way, you can look at health and wellness and the performance, kind of the medical sports physiology space as obviously quite quantitative, but I would say that it, it's relatively bottoms or maybe like tops down in terms of trying to find an approach. And I think from an engineering perspective, how do we really develop a first principles approach to really understand the quantitative approach, how to optimize these, optimize these, these outcomes. Mm -hmm. So to me, um, a little bit about like the sort of the personal journey is that I realized that a lot of my smartest friends in Silicon Valley were applying their big brains to making robots better, making AI better, you know, essentially that might be a nice way to put it, but, most people in Silicon Valley are helping people click more ads, right? Like they are essentially optimizing and targeting people based on their previous experiences. How do I drive traffic and, yep. and drive dollars? And I was in that industry and had a mobile app company, sold that company to Groupon. Um, and that gave me a little bit of a, perhaps the luxury to just think about what I really wanted to think about and work on. Mm. And I thought that human performance was just the next frontier. And that got me down the rabbit hole of being very plugged into the biohacking community. So very much self-experimenting and wearing continuous glucose monitors and yeah. tracking all my blood measures to now uh, uh, starting and running a company called HVMN, which stands for Healthy Amount of Nutrition, where we create products and technologies that support uh, human performance. And you probably have heard of our ketone ester drink. Yes. which uh, is uh, a very interesting piece of technology. Yeah, I was really excited to hear about that, and we'll get into that later because you are a very big expert on ketosis and keto and everything keto, basically. 
Um, and I just find it, yeah, really fascinating. Was there a personal um, health crisis or someone in the family or anything that you decided you wanted to go into the space or it was just purely I want to optimise my performance and the performance of people uh, in general? Yeah, actually the latter. And I know that many people in the community, what you know, talked to literally thousands of people in the broader community. I feel like most people make very drastic life changes when there is a crisis. There's a yeah. health crisis, and I, I have to admit, I, I was just fortunately in a very different space where I was just healthy, and I was wondering, can I even be any better? <laughs> so it was very much very focused on the optimization perspective. But now in retrospect, I think it's very much the same problem. Yep. We're all on the spectrum of uh, being sick or being in a deficient state, and we all want to move in the other direction to be better. And our starting location on this spectrum can be a little bit different, right? We can Some are healthier than others. Some are more deficient than others. But we all want to move in the same vector of being better. Um, so to me, my initial interest started off in cognitive performance. Um, and that was just essentially based on this notion that humanity has become more and more focused on cognitive output as a way to create our livelihoods. Whereas 2000 years ago, our physical output was our primary mode to create a living. Um, and my interest there was that, especially in this new economy, there's a very much interesting sort of winner take all dynamic. If you can eke out a few more percent of cognitive performance or creativity that has an, uh, uh, a, a, a disproportionate leverage in terms of the outcome that you get, both economically as well as amongst competition. So my initial interest was focused on cognitive performance. And as I started more and more nootropics, um, it became kind of this rabbit hole of diving deeply into metabolism. Um, the entry point in nootropics led to fasting. Mm-hmm. And I was, I would say, one of the, you know, earlier people on the, the wave of fasting. This is about four or five years ago where we started experimenting with fasting. And then uh, that really became a trend in Silicon Valley and abroad where, in the larger where now intermittent fasting is like a very common parlance term that a lot of people talk about. It was very interesting that, you know, four or five years ago, if you Google fasting, people thought, I, I literally thought I was going to die if I didn't eat in 24 hours. Maybe, maybe not that drastically, but it was just like, oh, like, not eating for a few days, that seems kind of insane. Is that even possible? Um, but intermittent fasting led to ketogenic diet. And it, it was became, like, because as you look at the mechanism of why fasting works, fasting uh, the, uh, basically depletes your glycogen or glucose reserves, and it forces the, uh, your body to convert uh, fat into ketones. And the ketogenic diet was a very interesting way to also uh, endogenously produce ketones. Um, and there was a very interesting, again, relatively early in the phase of the, I would say the influx of publication and research going on in the ketogenic today, uh, at the time was, you know, more of a nascent field. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I was looking at the ketogenic diet, that got me interested in things like ketone esters or other exogenous ketones. How can you exogenously induce a very rapid deep state of ketosis? Yeah. So in some sense, it was just like a very crazy journey from being a Stanford computer scientist and a software entrepreneur to now being the human performance space. But if you just look at the five, six year journey of looking at uh, the problems that I was interested in and then just pursuing and digging and researching and going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, 
it kind of all makes sense in retrospect. And I think that's kind of the fun journey of life. I mean, you know, I don't know if you thought that you would have a podcast five years ago, right? And just like same with me, like, I didn't know I was going to have you know, conversations with people around the world about health and human performance and work with, you know, world champion athletes. Yeah. But that's the thing really, you know, when I have a bit of time to reflect, that's just really the beauty of life. You got to, you know, enjoy yeah. the journey that we all are and embark on. Uh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I, I'm the same. I've gone from being a, an athlete to now, you know, specializing in brain rehabilitation and writing books and doing podcasts and um, and and I don't think we should limit ourselves to because we we learned something at university or at school and that's it for us for life. I think that's the beauty of the time that we live in that we can go like this, and that yeah. makes uh, for a richer you know um, experience. You know, and and um, and you bring a completely different lens to the 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 health side of it that and I don't have. You know that your you know amazing brain that you've brought to you know, from being in computer science and then applying that, that sort of modeling to the, to the human body. And, um, and I've heard a few people, obviously, along these lines say um, that there are so much similarities. And I think there are. And it's exciting to think of it in that, in that way. Um, so go into the ketosis and the, and the keto diet, because um, this is something that's very, very interesting for many of my listeners, for sure. Um, so I come from, you know, an extreme uh, endurance background where you're doing like mega long races. And when I started out, it was all you had to be having calories and carbs all the time. Um, and, you know, the high points of my career were, you know, you were eating up to 10,000 calories a day to yep. be able to fuel yourself. And if you didn't get those calories in, you hit the wall. Um, and now, you know, there are quite a few uh, fat adapted athletes. Um, what's your take on, you know, like with um, extreme endurance, like doing ultra marathons and so on? Um, what are the what are the advantages and disadvantages that you would see? I mean, I know that you you've done a half marathon yourself or, or a couple, I think. Um, yeah. you, you get the running sort of uh, analogy. What is your take on on you know the use of oxygen per, per unit? I, I, I understand is much much higher when you're on keto. But I've never actually tried it when I was competing, so I'm right. really interested to you know see what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think um, it's nuanced, and I would say I don't think it needs to be overly complicated. So the way I think about it is that there's perhaps I would say two categories of athletes. There's I would say the category of athletes that are looking to be world championship caliber level and looking to optimize performance, perhaps at the detriment of longevity and lifespan and health. Yep. And there's a second yep. category of athletes that are more lifestyle. They want to challenge themselves and they want to have a, uh, oh. let me just, let me just put on pause. Excuse me. There's always thought um, going off. <laughs> yeah. And there's a second category of athletes that are more lifestyle and in amateur, right? So I think yeah. even at that level, there's different recommendations. Yep. Um, and I would even slice up the categorization in another way. There are training periods and competition periods, right? And I think for endurance athletes, that's, and again, athletes that are more serious, that's like a very uh, known uh, practice, right? You periodize your training, your psychiatric training, try to peak towards an event. Mm -hmm. Now, even with that, there's like literally four different subsets of talking about the same thing, right? 
And I think within the broader common discussion, it's very easy to say, oh, you should carb load. And it's like, well, are you carb loading for training? Are you trying to win the marathon? Or are you trying to like have a good day out? So even with the, with, I think the, the, the simplification that's in the yeah. common discourse, you're already missing a lot of the subtleties in those four quadrants that we already subset uh, segmenting out. Um, and then if we just narrow specifically for ultra endurance or highly aerobic activities, that is a very different performance profile than anaerobic, yep. team sports, powerlifting, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so uh, traditional best practices is this notion of carb loading. And there is you know, good reason why one wants to have a lot of carbohydrate reserves. And then you constantly supplement uh, sugar or goose or yeah, uh, things as you as you compete. Um, now, the ketogenic diet and being more fat adapted is becoming, you know, theoretically in, in the research perspective has always been interesting. And I think within the last few years, there are now world championship, world record breaking of results that are being created using fat adapted athletes. Right. So I think again, there's like the randomized controlled trial world, which are done on serious athletes, mm -hmm. not necessarily like you are the best person in the world, right? Yeah. Like there's a difference there. And uh, Zach Bitter is an interesting case study of where he just recently had the world record for the 100-mile uh, run. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very ultra-endurance. Yeah, yeah. I think he also broke the world record for the 24-hour distance covered. Wow. And um, the whole notion, and, and he's a, 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 a sort of a fat-adapted athlete. So, what, what, so, so I think, so, so I think like, so even, so, so basically I would say that like the study research is based on serious athletes and there is like good results or decent evidence that being fully keto adapted is comparable to being a carb driven athlete. Now, the question is, if you want a world record performing performance, how would you protocol against that? And if you actually talk to Zach Bitter, he will take carbs for the actual performance, but in the training blocks, he will train fat adapted or fasted. Uh -huh. So that's an interesting subtlety that I don't think is covered really well. Wow. So when we talk to athletes and when we work with athletes, um, people really understand that you periodize your training blocks. So your physical activity alters uh, over time. And I think what will be an emerging trend is that you will cycle your, your, your nutrition along with your training blocks to optimize the peak for a certain performance. I think that is being implemented at the very, very top levels. And I think that will be, that will translate to lower tiers of sport as well. Yeah. Um, I think that is, that's a very interesting point, that cyclical nature of ketosis, you know, like to be in ketosis constantly can be, can present its own issues, can't it? Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to think that it is necessarily bad, but there has been interesting research coming out of the Buck Institute showing that a cyclical ketogenic diet has similar health span impact than on permanent ketogenic diet on an animal, on a mouse model, on a rat model, or rodent model. Yep. So um, this is really, I would say, at the cusp of cutting edge science. Mm -hmm. I think some of these answers are still going to be unpacked. And I think just from an athletic perspective, if I were to give like uh, guidance, and I just want to make it like a, like a punchy resolution to like just kind of like a sort of explanation of the nuance is that if I were looking at 
uh, endurance performance, I would consider doing fat adapted training fasted or using fat as a fuel um, in early parts of my aerobic training block. Mm-hmm. And then as I get closer and closer to performance day, I will start reintroducing carbohydrate. And then on performance day, I would have a blend of both fat, like heat, like exogenous ketone, like a ketone ester and carbs on race day itself. Wow. So basically on race day, you want to fuel with as much substrate as possible. Mm-hmm. And in the preparation to that performance day, you train and maximize the metabolic flexibility of your body. But you want your ketone metabolism to be high. You want your fat oxidation to be high. And you also want to be able to use carbohydrate at the same time. Okay. So, so you, metabolic flexibility, can you explain to the listeners a little bit what is that? Like, uh, so how hard is it to become fat adapted? And what is the power with your ketone ester that your company produces um, compared to an MCT oil? Oh, sorry, this is a two-part question. but uh, Or, you know, your normal sort of exogenous ketones you know, compared to the level of a ketone ester and then, yeah. Yeah. So I'll answer the first part around metabolic flexibility. I think that's definitely one of the buzzwords being thrown around in the community at this point. And, uh, it's really a simple concept in in the sense that it's your body's ability to metabolize, which means like use as energy, uh, the different macronutrients or substrates that exist. So, what are, what are macronutrients? They're simply just foodstuffs that have calories in them, right? Like carbs have some calorie count that has some calorie value and protein have some calorie value. Something like vitamin D or caffeine, they're like micronutrients. They don't have calorie sources, but they support metabolism or, you know, caffeine is not really a micronutrient. It's, it's you know, and it, it blocks adenosine so you feel less tired. Right. But they, but it, it's like, you know, people talk about it as like an energy. It's not necessarily an actual calorie substance. It's just like yeah. tricks your brain into feeling less tired. Yeah. Um, so what is metabolic flexibility? Well, when, and it's, it's especially in a standard Western diet context, we eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. But that essentially trains your body to be really good at using carbs as a fuel substrate. So all the enzymes that relate to glucose metabolism are upregulated and your body isn't really using the metabolic pathways to process fat or ketones, uh, then it's done, those pathways are downregulated. So if you actually look at like fat oxidation rates, you can actually measure this in people. Um, people that are less metabolically flexible will burn less fat at at, at stasis versus someone that is more me- metabolically flexible. Wow, well, another reason um, to to you know trial the cycling at least and in, into ketosis. Right. So you can you know so you can do what's called like respiratory quotient test. So you can breathe, um, you know, you breathe in and out, and it, you, you measure the ratio of CO two and O two as you ramp up intensity. And people that are quite metabolically efficient can. And, and, and quite fit can burn fat to a very, very high level. Whereas people that are less um, metabolically flexible or, and not very fit, they instantly turn into using uh, anaerobic or glucose as energy as opposed to being able to use fat as energy. Yep. So, uh, so when we say metabolic flexibility, it's the ability for your body to use and burn all these different substrates at the, at the same time. Um, and... Uh, 
And I think the, the, I think that touches upon like so much other sort of cascading into like you can talk about insulin resistance, yeah, insulin is a sort of hormone, and it, it, it really just touches this whole span of how metabolism works. Mm-hmm. But I think just in in the, in the context of this specific topic, it's just essentially like the, the, the notion that you can switch fuel sources uh, relatively efficiently. So if, if um, you know, I'm going to go on a keto diet, a lot of people have, you know, the keto flu and then yep. they give up because it's pretty horrible. Um, does something like ketone ester, that the product you have, or even exogenous ketones of any form, speed you up to get you into ketosis and does it help you avoid the keto flu or not? Yeah, so this is actually a good bridge. I, I didn't answer the second part of your question. It's like, what is the difference between other exogenous ketones? And I think it's like a nice segue or transition. So when people go through the keto flu, that's essentially a sign of metabolic inflexibility. So why is that? Well, when you suddenly cut off your carbohydrate intake, again, your body is used to using carbohydrates as a fuel substrate. So when your body runs out of carbs, it's like, it's in an energy deficit. It's like, oh, I'm really hungry. Like we're not getting that fuel. And what's happening there is that your body isn't as efficient at converting fats and oxidizing fat and mobilizing fat and mobilizing and turning that fat into ketones. So there's this deficit period where you have low carbohydrate, low glucose, mm-hmm. and you have low ketones at the same time. Oh. So essentially you have low energy substrate available in your system so you feel tired you feel bad you feel cranky um so the idea is if you are metabolically flexible so like you know i've done a lot of fasting i eat fairly low carb and i'll do cyclical blocks of keto i can generate ketones relatively quickly so i I don't really get i would say i i I, like the like the adaptation for period for me is like quite quick Um, and now the question is, can you use exogenous ketones to help bridge that energy gap? Well, essentially that's been one of the popular use cases of exogenous ketones, right? Um, I would say the nuance is that it doesn't increase the ability for your body to produce its own ketones, oh, yeah. but it's actually a nice gap to where you have low glucose, your body is still trying to ramp up ketone production, but if you just give you some support, of having like a source of energy that's not carbohydrate mm-hmm. in the interim that makes that transition period a little bit smoother. Um, so that would be the application of exogenous ketones. Now let's answer the initial question. What are exogenous ketones? What are the types? What's interesting about ketone ester? Um, l- let's define what ketones are in the first place. Well, ketones are what I consider a fourth macronutrient. Uh, and, and the interesting thesis there is that, well, you have fat, protein, carbohydrate, they have calories, and they're a metabolic substrate. Well, ketones have the same exact profile. It matches the definition. It has calories, and it is a fuel for metabolism. Um, but you can't really, it's not found in really in high levels of normal food. So people have been trying to synthesize exogenous ketones that you can consume eat directly so you can kind of create like a new food group here mm-hmm. uh, you asked about mct oils um what are they uh mct medium chain triglycerides are fat fatty acids that readily convert into ketones uh-huh. 
So yeah. it's a fat, but it's a relatively efficient fat that converts into uh, through your liver uh, through ketogenesis and in, in, into into ketones. Um, caprylic acid or C8 is the most efficient uh, fatty acid that converts the, into beta hydroxybutyrate. Uh, you can it, it's eight carbon uh, eight carbon length chain, and then if you look at BHP, it's four carbon. So it's like a very nice sized fatty acid that readily converts into BHP. Um, so what is BHP? Well, what is ketones? Well, ketones ascribe this fourth macronutrient and the main form of a ketone is this specific molecule called BHB or beta-hydroxybutyrate. We'll just nickname it BHB, so it's not quite a mouthful. Um, now, if you can take, if BHB is the end ketone that you want, can you deliver that in a food form? Um, and that's where you have things like ketone esters or ketone salts that you might have seen. Mm-hmm. So it just these are just different formulations or different ways to deliver beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, through in, in a consumable form. Yeah. Uh, the very cool thing about ketone esters, however, is that uh, it's a very highly efficient way to deliver a lot of ketones without any uh, GI issues that are typically associated with ketone salts. So if you actually look at um, the, the space, I would say like there's like things like MCT oils, like that's, you know, that has its place, it's valuable, right? It's like a nice form of fat that converts really into ketones, but it's not an exogenous ketone, right? It's not eating beta-hydroxybutyrate directly. Uh-huh. And then when you look at exogenous ketones, there's primarily ketone salts and then ketone esters. Um, and what ketone salts are is essentially beta-hydroxybutyrate bound to uh, minerals like sodium, potassium, uh-huh. calcium, magnesium. So you, oftentimes you look at a label of a ketone salt, it's like a ton of minerals. Like it's like 100% of your wow. like, like recommend daily allowance of salt yeah. in a small drink. So that can, you know, and I think, you know, so, you know, there's arguments whether it, you know, people need more salt anyways. I think that's, you know, a different rabbit hole, but regardless, I think from a performance perspective, there's often GI issues when you have so much salt so quickly. And yep. that is a real concern from a performance perspective. Yep. Uh, ketone esters, it's bound to ketone precursors. So it's just a lot more pure way to deliver ketones in a, the minerals. Yeah, without the salts involved. So, because I can imagine if you've got all the salts and um, minerals in the, the ketone salts, that as an athlete, for example, could could really cause trouble in an endurance event, yep. for example. Yep. Um, okay, so that's that's exogenous ketone. So the ketone ester, so the one that you um, have at your company, is is a that's been developed over like. 15 to 20 years from uh, in, in a, a ton of, of investment money gone into this, to the research money. Is this much more powerful than, so, you know, just for the lay person than, than buying an MCT oil, you know? Yes. It, it, so it's, it's direct ketones rather than a precursor or having to go through the liver to be turned into hopefully ketones. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and this is measurable and you can like do this at an, like with your own finger, if you actually measure ketones through a finger stick, typically like an MCT oil will bump your beta hydroxybutyrate, your BHB levels to maybe 0.5 bump. Um, and with a ketone ester, we can, you'll typically see up to 5.0 millimoles. So literally 10 times wow. more ketones delivered uh, that's in a consumable form. 
Um, Does that negate the need to be on a keto, a keto diet when you have ketoacids? Can you get away with eating carbs still? <laughs> that would be the optimal. <laughs> yeah, so that's like an interesting area of discussion and research. Uh, some people, so some would say yes. I, 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 I think it's nuanced. So basically, it's like, what do you want on a vacation diet? I think there is some value of carbohydrate restriction, carbohydrate restriction, but a lot of the benefits of a ketogenic diet, diet is having ketones present to be metabolized, both as a metabolic substrate as well as a signaling molecule. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how much of the benefit of a ketogenic diet is from the carbohydrate restriction alone, and how much of the benefit is from the ketones exactly. as, as both a substrate and a signaling molecule? And that's really an open area of research. Mm-hmm. I my you know, non, I have no data to support either direction is that um, there's some subset of the value that's delivered by fasting or ketogenic diets that's, that comes directly from ketones themselves. So can you get some, most of the benefit of a ketogenic diet or fasting through uh, exogenous ketone? I think so. That would be the that would be hypothesis. So that would be interesting to see how that research unfolds in the next year or two. Um, right. that would be, you know, because obviously the keto diet is quite a difficult diet for many people to adhere to, um, especially long term. Um, and what about the whole triglycerides problem you know, when people are on a keto diet? What's your take on, on the negative sides of, of keto and having so much? Yeah, so, um, usually, uh, uh, you, yeah, so the lipid, like the, basically your blood lipid panels is something that people t- tend to look at when you're looking at, you know, high fat diets, right? So, uh, you know, people look at triglycerides, as you mentioned, but also LDL, low density lipoprotein, cholesterol, and HDL high density. Um, so the typical concern is that if you eat such a high fat diet, your LDL cholesterol will go up a lot. Um, and that could be a reasonable concern. So there's some interesting data that, sh- that perhaps suggests that if you look at LDL alone, it's not really a great predictor of cardiovascular disease risk. Uh, you should really look at the triad of LDL, HDL, triglycerides all together. So typically in a well-formulated ketogenic diet, you may see an elevation of LDL, but you see high HDL and low triglycerides. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, and again, don't want to be giving medical advice. I'm not a medical doctor, but there is an interesting stream of research going on now where if you look at a cohort of people with high LDL, which may be bad, but you know, but high HDL and low triglycerides, the association with cardiovascular disease risk disappears. Yep. So So the question is then is LDL alone a great predictor of cardiovascular disease risk? I think that's, again, an open area of research. Um, I think, again, just, again, from a systems thinking perspective, uh, you need to look at the whole system. It's kind of arbitrary to just choose one thing and be like, okay, you have one thing here. Like, that's going to give you a disease. Well, it's like, yes, that, that might be associationally correlated, but we need to understand the full system. Yep. And uh, that's where I think there's a lot of interesting research. Yeah. And it would make sense to me that, you know, you do need to look at the ratios of things. Like you say, it's, it's looking at the whole system of, of things. And, you know, the, 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 the old way of thinking that cholesterol was bad for you 
period is is really <laughs> not not correct. Um, I think you know now we've moved on from that sort of idea that that isn't the way to. to yeah, I, mean, I think it's just like complicated and like very nuanced. And I think the <laughs> I think people want that headline. I mean, how many times have you seen eggs are good or eggs are yeah. bad? Yeah. I've seen like it's literally like it flip flops every single day. Yeah. Um, and I think it just it just shows you that nutrition is very complicated. People have different genetic baselines. People yes. respond to food differently. Yes. And to me, I don't want to be overly prescriptive on everyone should eat X certain way. Yeah. Like again, for me as an engineer and me as a, someone that likes self experimentation, yeah. you should yeah. really measure the responses yourself. When I see my own glucose numbers and I see my own blood lipid profile, when I do these different types of diets, I know what works for me and equals one. And that ultimately is what matters. Like it doesn't matter what the randomized controlled trial says for a population of white men that are aged 25 through 30 in a US college, right? And that's oftentimes oftentimes the people that are being studied, right? Like I think there's, there's a reasonable critique on the selection sample of what all the science is done on, right? Most clinical trials are not done on women. No, no. Not, not done on It's like, okay, like, <laughs> it, it, again, like, it's very hard to run science. I understand why people want to, like, reduce the vari- variables. But I think it's like, you take the, again, the mechanisms that you can derive from the literature and then confirm it with yourself. And I think... That's ultimately, I think, that, that tandem of the general literature and then how does it actually apply to you as N equals one. And this, is, this goes a nice segue into your stance as an advocate for smart regulation for human en- en- enhancement and, and our ability to take control of our own, you know, like a lot of biohackers now around the planet, and I include myself in this, that we believe um, that we have the right to control our own bodies, and we—I'm not prepared to give up my control over my own health to the local doctor at all. <laughs> so, um, and I think it's it's important that we start to take some responsibility because we've also had, and you know, in our culture and in our society, the opinion that the the doctor knows everything, and I don't have a, a right to question, to experiment, to understand. Um, and, you know, I uh, mentioned to you before the journey I've been on with my mum and I've had my own health journeys where, you know, things have gone pear-shaped, no. how we say. And and, and I and from those experiences, I, I, I now want to be as much in control as I possibly can be. Obviously, I don't have access to everything I would love to have access to. Um, but I want to. I want to have the right to be able to try things on my own body and to be able to experiment and to understand where I sit, and to have people understand that it's their responsibility to take their own health into their own to do your own research. And, and we live in a time, don't we, Jeffrey, where we, we've got access to to minds like yours and experiences like yours and the cutting edge science and the latest data. We don't have to settle for, um, you know, one person's opinion from a local perspective, perhaps, who trained 25 years ago. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I 100% agree with everything you just stated there. I think you put it quite nicely. But I do want to just, I guess, make caveats. I don't think the 
healthcare system or specifically the individual clinician is the enemy. No. I think that they're trying to do their best, mm-hmm. but the incentives are, I would say like, I don't think anyone is excited about the healthcare system yes. that as well. No. But I think the underlying point, and so I think like I've talked to a lot of doctors and I think there's, I think everyone is trying to do their best. I don't think anyone is like a individual bad actor here. No. Um, but I think the point that really the underlying point is that people should be self-empowered to take agency of their own health and happiness. I think that's a really the most important point because you care about your own health more than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, like, yeah, your doctor like cares about you, but he has his own problem. She might have a, you know, family issues or a husband and a hundred other patients to worry about. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, it's just life. But you, you are living with your body. You are living with your own health. And just like you wouldn't necessarily do a business deal or buy a house or buy a car without research, how, why would you not take that same level of research to important medical procedures or lifestyle choices for your own health? And so, so that to me, it's just not even like challenging the healthcare system. It's just like, look, you care about your health the most. You have the biggest stake in your own health. Yeah. Oftentimes, we're just asked to just be passive in our own health. Yeah. And that seems so backwards, given that you spent like 20 hours online searching the latest launch of a computer gadget. Yeah. That you're going you're gonna to like, you know, change your lifestyle, change your nutrition, change, take medication. And you're just like... Um, Taking it, you know, yeah. just yeah, just pass upon it. And I think again, I, I, I think, and I think basically, my, my sense of the future is that um, information is getting more and more decentralized. I think the successful doctors will have a much more collaborative relationship with their patients, um, and ultimately, we are the buyer, we are the customer in this relationship. And I think there will be a world where it becomes much more collaborative. Like, these are my specific concerns. Can you address them? These are my goals. This is my starting position. I want to understand and take a little bit of a self-responsibility here rather than do an annual checkup. You'd see me for 15 minutes and I'm on my way with a couple little pill prescriptions, right? Like, like I don't think that's going to work anymore. No, and, and, it, and it can't work anymore. And, and I, you know, um, what you're also on the cutting edge you're in silicon valley you you see a lot of the biotech stuff that's coming uh in the future um i listened to a a a speech that you did on the future of biotech and 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 where you see this going with expanding human capabilities and i was just like wow really (laughs) you know like um what what is coming down the road? Can you give us a little bit of a, a, a glimpse into what you think is coming as far as what AI is going to do and genetic engineering and CRISPR and goodness knows what else? Yeah. Um, we've got some exciting and some scary things in the future. <laughs> yeah. I think my framework here is that, again, just sort of the, the engineering hat on, if you can't measure it, you can't optimize it. I think that we will get much more available biomarker data on our overall system. So I think, uh, as I mentioned, you have a continuous glucose monitor uh, out there. That is a very nice device to, again, track your blood sugar continuously over time. Now, I know there's, you know, 
I want to track much more biomarkers, right? Like there's a big companies looking at uh, looking at the space. So I think phase one or step one is that we'll have a passive data stream across all the important biomarkers uh, readily at our fingertips. Like why can't you have not just a continuous glucose level, but why not have continuous ketone levels? Why not have continuous insulin levels? Why not track your LDL, HDL triglycerides over time? Yeah. I think this is one thing as a, you know, with a strong quantitative mathematics background, I think biology has been built on snapshots. Yeah. One blood draw, and, and that's what we base everything on. But, but we're literally dynamic systems with flux, with flow, these things change a lot. And I think, like, literally, if I eat a ton of fat the day before a blood draw, or I fast the day before a blood draw, yeah. Yeah. You're it, it's literally completely different. Yeah. So I think we need to understand the actual flux and, and, and slopes of all these changes, rather than just, like, do science on snapshots. Right? So I think it's like physics. It's like you're, taking, you're doing physics with uh, looking at a planet move every year versus, okay, what if we can, like, track with telescopes, the movement of the planet, so we can actually model this much better. So I think from step one, like we're gonna have much more available real stream, real time streams of data. Um, and then two, I think once we have that real time passive data streams, we'll be able to have much more personalized recommendations and protocols for people. Um, I think we all intuitively know this. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you like certain things differently than other people and you respond to things differently from other people. There was a big uh, metabolism paper published, you know, probably not two, three years ago where banana to me might spike my glycemic response, but you might be able to tolerate it quite well. Yeah. And it kind of intuitively makes sense, right? If like my ancestors ate bananas and your ancestors ate apples, like there's going to be an, an, an yeah. now we're in a globalized world and we're just eating a bunch of, like fake bananas and fake apples, um, you know, it stands the reason that we'll have different glycemic responses to that kind of input. Um, so given that we have passive data streams, we can actually now in real time instantly adjust our diet, our nutrition, our protocol, our exercise, our sleep to match what actually uh, is optimal for our N equals one. For our team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we do in our company um, epigenetic testing, and we look at um, the genetic, you know, makeup of people, and have the personalised recommendations, of, of, all based on the work of a Dr. Albert Giroli from Italy, yeah. um, looking at fifteen different uh, different science disciplines and distilling it into some um, reports that we can take, and then have an insight as coaches and as health coaches um, to be able to personalise. To, to a degree, at this stage, it'll get better and get better as time goes on. Um, what times of the day, you know, your chronobiology, um, what your genetic, your ancestry is, as to how you're going to, how you developed in the, in the womb, you know. Um, yeah. and, and all these different layers that is giving us as coaches uh, an insight into our athletes um, and our clients that we never before had, and this is only going to grow, you know, and, yeah. I, and I'm excited about that, firstly, as a, as a coach, because we're seeing much better results now, where, yeah. you know, you train two, two athletes with the same diet and the same training, and one will get massive results, and the other one doesn't, and you're like, why, are you lying to us? You're not doing the stuff, you know, and it's actually, mm -hmm. no, they're just responding different to this. Yeah. I'm, 
really excited about all the tracking stuff. I'd love to get a constant glucose monitor. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think you're exactly right. I feel like oftentimes when you talk to doctors, they like don't believe their patients. Yes, like you hear anecdotes where it's like I, you literally try to follow a protocol, and it's like not working. They're like, "Oh, you're lying." It's like yeah. you're no, I, that, that's where I think we need to see that re-establish the doctor-patient relationship a little bit. Where I mean, again, like it's not to say that doctors are not trying to do their best. I think it's like what I, I would say. I would say what I would do is that let's just empower ourselves and learn more, so we can have a productive conversation with our. Uh, primary practitioner um and then they're just like kind of like you know what i see coming around the corner is that like you'll have more and more interesting uh technologies that are that drive inputs into human performance right like ketone ester other other exogenous ketones are very interesting it's, it's a new way to deliver substrate into our bodies and signal different things um interesting compounds that tap into longevity pathways right um and uh uh, I think they're just like there's just I think we're understanding the systems biology of humans much much better, and that gives us an ability to maybe tweak and push certain inputs in a way that maps to uh, a performance profile that we want. And again, like, and that could be different for different people, right? Like, maybe if I'm obsessed with you know health span, it could be different from I want to win an Olympic gold medal next year. Definitely, coming from an you know athletic background, where you know I push my mind. <laughs> To the, to the limits um it wasn't about longevity at that t at that stage you know um you can do a lot of damage as an athlete you can be fit and unhealthy um which is a which is also a, a, a people go but if you're an athlete you're you you've got to be healthy well actually no you can be <laughs> quite unhealthy but be fit um, yeah. uh, and now as an you know getting getting older and getting a, bit, a little bit wiser and looking at longevity and wanting to have health span over a longer period of time have changed my whole approach to the way I train and the way, and, and I think that, that that's a healthy progression to, to, to move into so that, you know, I'm looking at being able to do what I want to at 95 or 105, hopefully, um, yeah, right. and not be completely broken and burnt out, you know, which I've done in the past and which I see a lot of athletes doing. Um, and, and, and having this information provides, I mean, gosh, when I started doing ultramarathons back 25 something years ago, we didn't even know about electrolytes for crying out loud, you know? Um, and, and now of course we've got a whole lot more things at our fingertips and we can, uh, we can see the improvements in performance over the last few years with, with extreme endurance athletes um, like Zach and, and, and that type of thing. Um, and, and it's only going to, you know, the limits of human performance aren't even reached yet, you know, and that's without tapping into the whole mind side of it. Um, yeah. Also another fascinating side. Um, I just wanted to pivot and, and then I know we've got to wrap up, but um, you've also gone a, a pretty deep dive into nootropics, uh, which yeah. are, you know, brain enhancing uh, supplements and smart drugs and, and, and things like that. Um, having someone in the family with, you know, a massive brain, who's had a massive brain injury, I'm very interested to get your take on what some of the, the great nootropics are for people who um, uh, maybe have brain injuries, uh, maybe heading towards dementia, Alzheimer's, um, that sort of thing. I know you're not a medical doctor, but um, what is your take on some of the exciting compounds uh, or even 
the ketones for for things like um, dementia and Alzheimer's? What is your take on that? Yeah, um, I think it's a very busy space in the sense that there's a lot of things that are preferred to have nootropic benefit, but you really need to look and drill down into specific compounds and then judge the evidence of each specific compound on your specific use case, right? So, uh, you know, when we developed our nootropic supplements, we looked at specific compounds that have randomized controlled trials on healthy humans and showing, you know, benefits, physics going to get benefit for those use cases. Um, but oftentimes things that can improve performance in healthy humans, it's much easier to improve performance in people that are deficient. So when you expand the scope a little bit, uh, the evidence pool gets a little bit even better when you're looking at potentially hoping, hoping people that have mild cognitive impairment and trying to you know, prevent decline and, and move that more towards a positive direction. Um, so obviously, you know, you know, the products that we sell, you know, we think are very, very high quality and have the robust evidence. So we have Rise with Bacopa, uh, which has, you know, quite a, you know, solid amount of evidence around randomized control trials at specific doses, boosting long-term memory, et cetera. So that's pretty exciting. If you actually talk to the principal investigator, who's actually a professor in uh, Konst, I believe he's at the University of Swinburne. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, excited about that class of, you know, compounds. And, and I believe he's still doing active research in that area. Um, now, I think ketones are also like an interesting area of research in terms of driving uh, cognitive uh, benefit. Um, the mechanism of action there is that glucose crosses the blood-brain barrier, but also so do ketones. And you might have heard of Alzheimer's, nicknamed type 3 diabetes. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. And, and the thesis there is that part of the problem with Alzheimer's is that there's a glucose uptake dysfunction where it's for whatever reason, whether it's insulin resistance or some other yeah. uh, deficiency or, or the, the brain cells aren't able to process glucose that well. While ketones are uptake and metabolism in a completely different pathway, can you rescue that energy deficit, that, that defect to a completely different substrate? So there's been pretty early data around ketogenic diet being helpful as well as exogenous ketones like ketone esters being helpful for those use cases as well. So yeah, um, on that I, point, um, I just had a Dr. Um, Cabrin Charpik on, on the show last week, uh, who's a, a written a book, Concussion Rescue, looking at uh, traumatic brain injury, dementia, and um, Alzheimer's. Um, and there's a, when you have a brain injury, for example, there's, a, there's a, a metabolic problem with the glucose getting in at that acute phase um, where the glucose is not getting put in. And they, they did a, um, a trial uh, where they put you know, IV glucose into people with brain injuries and they suppressed the ketones that the body was producing, the small yeah. amount that was actually feeding the brain and actually made them yeah. worse. Um, yeah. and, and this is like, oh my God, that's what they did with my mum when she was in ICU. They put in, you know, and I'm like, I had no idea at the time that, that the glucose was not, they, it would be logical to think, give people glucose because your brain needs a lot of glucose. But when there's a metabolic disruption caused by the brain injury, it would have been far better to give her ketones and, and you know, ketone ester or something or even fish oils and, and, and so on to feed the brain. 
than than glucose and suppressing what little ketones you would have had, you know? Um, yeah, no, that, 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 that's exactly right. The mechanism that, that you're describing is exactly right. There's catecholamine release and that uh, blunts glucose uptake. Yes. And this so, is yeah, it, 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 so that's very interesting, right? Like, I think it's, again, that's where you have to understand the mechanisms to have a solution. Yeah. And uh, again, I don't want, like, I, I think as, you know, we don't want to overhype anything. I think that's another area of uh, interesting area of research. I think it's quite interesting. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to see published results yeah. to confirm that hypothesis. But that's exactly, a, a, you know, the mechanism of action we would be targeting to, to looking at exogenous ketones for, for, for a concussion of TBI. That's yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, definitely should connect with or listen to my last episode because that was a really yeah. interesting thing. You'd, 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 you'd be great to get on your show. Um, yeah. So I know we have to wrap up, um, Jeffrey. So um, some of your products, you've got your nootropics, you've got um, your the one, you, you've got a sleep aid, you've got a focus and memory aid. Uh, the other two, you had another two there. Um, yeah, we have an uh, omega-3 DHA focus, like a brain DHA supplement uh, called Kato. And then we have, uh, so we, yeah, we have sort of like chronic long-term cognitive performance called RISE. And then we have Sprint, which is more of an acute uh, caffeine alphenine stack. All right. So if anyone wants to check them out, so firstly, uh, you have a podcast called yeah. the HVMN Podcast. So everybody go and check out Jeffrey Wu on that podcast, HVNM. Correct? Yep. Uh, I always get the N and M. I must be slightly dyslexic mm-hmm. <laughs> around the wrong way. Um, and they, when people reach out to you and connect with you uh, and the work that you're doing, um, and can they get the ketone esters um, via your website soon? I, I understand you're out of stock at the moment. <laughs> yeah, checking on the website, that will be the most up-to-date place to get updates. We're at hvmn.com. Um, yeah, it's uh, always interesting at the beginning of the year because a lot of the institutional sports teams kind of stock up for the season. So, so you got, you got um, things taken out of the shelves, did you? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it's sort of like first come first serve, right? It's, you know, I, I guess there's been a lot of media coverage on Tour de France teams, for example, using our product. Um, oh, so that's coming up later this summer and, or awesome. kind of spring and a lot of the, sale volume goes goes there um but yeah I, I mean you find us at hvmn very easily searchable but also feel free to connect with me personally uh at jeffrey Wu g-e-o-f-f-r-e-y-w-o-o both you know primarily on twitter and instagram happy to engage there as well awesome i will put all those links jeffrey in the in the show notes and thank you so much for your precious time today i really appreciate the work you're doing i love listening to your podcast um, I, I do feel at the end of it quite challenged <laughs> intellectually often, um, but it's at the cutting edge of what's happening out there. So it's really, really exciting. So thanks very much for your time today. I really much enjoyed the conversation. Super fun. Thanks for having me. If your brain is not functioning at its best, then check out what the team at vlight.com do. Now, vlight produces photobiomodulation devices. Your brain function depends largely on the health of the energy sources of the brain cells, in other words, the mitochondria. And research has shown that stimulating your brain with near-infrared light revitalizes mitochondria. I use these devices daily for both 
my own optimal brain function, and also for other age-related decline issues, and also for my mum's brain rehabilitation after her aneurysm and stroke. So check out what the team do at violight.com, that's V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T.com, and use the code TAMITY at checkout to get 10% off any of their devices. That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com 